0: So today we approach chapter 20 in Revelation. We have seen that Revelation is a very simple book with a very simple message if you approach it in the way it's written. If you come to Revelation wanting to know what's going to happen, there's no simplicity at all. But that's not what it's written for. It gives us some inkling about what's going to happen, but for a purpose. It's a very simple book. It wants us to read, hear, or understand and do. And what it wants us to read and understand is... What's written here, and what's written here has two predominant messages, two predominant takeaways. One is, no matter what happens, no matter how crazy things look, God is where? On His throne. Nothing happens that's not authorized from this throne. Nothing. God's always there. That does not change, no matter how crazy things seem. You know, it seems that some of my friends from past that I've been reconnecting with are running into some of our other friends that were really devout walking believers during their college days and have since said I don't want anything to do with God and that's not that unusual to run across people that have decided you know I'm an atheist and what seems to be the underlying cause of atheism is not intellectual disbelief it's that God disappointed them somehow things didn't work out like I was entitled for them to work out and so I'm going to get God back by not believing in him. That seems to be pretty common. And what's missing there is the idea that things are supposed to work out a certain way according to the way I want it to. All of us would prefer that until it happens that way and then we say, God why did you let that happen? Because we just don't know. We don't know what's in our best interest and God does. And we've seen everything that happens in here authorized from the throne. word throne shows up 41 times in Revelation. And we're going to see it again today. Throne, throne, throne. And this the game of thrones that we're looking at includes all of us. If we are the faithful ones. And again, we're going to see that today. So that's the first big takeaway. The second one is God wants us to do something. And the something is very simple. Be a faithful witness. Do not fear death. Any kind of death. Rejection. Difficulty. Fiery trials. Don't fear those things. Just be a faithful witness. Do what I give you to do, and don't stop doing that all the way to the end. And that's Revelation. It's very simple. So let's start in chapter 20, because we're seeing see the culmination of all things. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So we see this angel coming down with a chain in his hand. and This kind of reminds me of watching a cowboy rope a cow. We've got some cows on our ranch. And some of them are kind of crazy. We had we had these three cows get loose for like a month. We couldn't find them on the place for a month. And finally, one day we saw one of them. I happened to be with the cowboy, so we went and grabbed some horses and started running after them. And I watched this cowboy rope this cow and drag him for a long distance. and That's kind of the image it has comes in my mind here. You got this angel come down and say, "Come here, you old snake! Gimme! Get hey! Get over here! Grab this chain! Drag him into the." To the door throw him in shut the door and then seal it up that seems to be kind of the picture that we have here now this bottomless pit has been opened once before let's look at it real quick It's back in Revelation 9 in chapter 9 verse 1 it says then the fifth angel sounded that was the fifth trumpet and I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth to him was given the key to the bottomless pit And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke came out. So in this particular case, this looks like a fallen angel that's given the key to the pit. And he's letting these uh, demonic forces out that are something like locusts and go and plague the earth. So it's interesting that in one case, there's a fallen angel opening the bottomless pit. And in this other instance, we have one of the good angels opening the bottomless pit and putting something in. And the thing that he's put in is actually... Satan. It's interesting, this word dragon is in Greek, the word dracon, D-R-A-K-O-N. And it's a word that shows up in Revelation only in the New Testament. But in the LXX, the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it shows up quite often. When Moses throws his rod down and it becomes a snake, it's the same word in the LXX. Now, this term devil and Satan, we've seen these terms before. Satan is a transliteration of this Old Testament Hebrew word, shaitan, which just means accuser. In fact, the word shaitan shows up eight times in the Old Testament before it's translated Satan. And each time it's just accuser or accusation, depending on the form of the word. But this Devil is the Greek word diabolos. And most of the time in the New Testament it's translated devil. But there's one instance where it's not. Let's look at it. 1 Timothy 3 verse 11. 1 Timothy 3 verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not diabolos. And the word is translated in your Bible probably slanderer or gossiper, accuser. So Satan likes accusation. And he lacks slander. Selective information in order to bring down your character. That's one of Satan's key uh, orientations. So, is that what? Yeah, well, I was just going to say, you know, you remember in chapter uh, 2, I think it was, Pergamos, it says, and Satan's throne is there. And Pergamos was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And Satan is still the prince of this world. And so, when you see campaigns, Yeah, Satan's present there and always has been. 1 John 2 takes on some real meaning here because we have this slandering accuser. And look at 1 John 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. 1 John's written to believers, and the point of 1 John is don't sin, and here's what you do if you do. Uh, Because there were these Gnostics going in saying, sin doesn't really matter. That's just something you do in your body. Your spirit is all that matters. And he was countering this. No sin matters a lot. And if anyone does sin, so I don't want you to sin, but if you do, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So we have this accuser standing before God, accusing us day and night, and we have Jesus there taken up for us. And that's a really cool picture. But it's not a picture that says, oh good, now I don't have to do anything. It's a picture that says, Jesus is there, and no matter what we do, we have him to keep us as a child. But there's these massive consequences to the choices we make. And so let's make good choices. So he binds him for a thousand years and puts him in this bottomless pit, shuts him up, sets a seal on it, and this seal is the idea of of an authority. You know, they seal Jesus' tomb. And the idea is if anybody breaks this seal, there's a penalty to pay. Because the authority said nobody opens this up without my permission. And once again, we see here that the throne is emanating the power. Nothing happens without permission from the throne all the way through this. And what is disallowed now is deception. And Satan is not going to be allowed to deceive the nations. And something very remarkable is going to happen as a result of not deceiving the nations. The world is going to be almost perfect for a thousand years. And he stays in this bottomless pit until this thousand years is finished. Does anybody remember the finished word? The Greek word that's finished or completed. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, the teleo, the telescope word. To see something that, okay, there's the end of my sight. Finished, completed. Which gives very clear indication that this thousand years is not a figurative term. It is an actual period of time. It's a thousand years. And the thousand years is going to start, and the thousand years is going to end. Which, once again, goes back to the throne. All this is timed out. It's on a calendar. Do any of you keep a day timer or an outlook or something like that, that? Somebody asks you, are you available on November 15th? And you say, just a minute. And you go look and say what you've prescribed is going to happen on November 15th. Even though you don't know if you're going to be alive on November 15th, really. Or if the earth's going to be here still on November 15th. But we plan anyway, right? We plan and then say if the Lord wills. But in God's case, he has an outlook and it's already and it's going to happen. And it's on there. And this thousand years has a start and it has an end. Which brings a real interesting question. When is the start? Now, let me show you a couple of things here that are very fascinating. Look at Revelation 12, 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. They should feed her for 1,260 days. This is the three and a half year period we've seen over and over again. And there are many other references to three and a half years. And it's 1,260 days. That's a pretty precise term. Don't you think? And that's how long that Israel is going to have to hide because there's this persecution, this great tribulation, this massive persecution of believers and destruction on the earth. That's 1,260 days. But look at Daniel 12, verse 11. Now we know that we're in this 70th week of Daniel, this 70th seven-year period. And this abomination of desolations in the middle of that seven-year period is what starts the Great Tribulation, this 1,260 days, this three-and-a-half-year period. And then we know that from Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 11, it says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. So that tells us two things. One is that... There is this abomination of desolation that is a starting point. And and again, we saw that uh, earlier in Daniel as well. And that associated with the abomination of desolation is this taking away a sacrifice, which tells us there is what? A temple. Yeah, there's sacrifice. So there's a temple. The temple's been reconstructed. So from that time, there shall be 1,290 days. So there's 30 days not accounted for. 1,260 days, Israel flees into the wilderness. So there's 30 days either on the front or the back of that or something else happens. And then it's verse 12. It says, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So you add another 45 days and something else momentous happens. Now, I have no idea what that is. I don't know if the 30 days is on the front or the end. I don't know what happens in those 30 days or those 45 days. I'm sure there's things that you could piece in here and try to figure out what that is. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is, God has all this programmed out. It's real specific. And on that day, something really amazing is going to happen. On that day. And you can only have that be the case if what? God's on the throne. You can only have that be the case if God is in control of history. And that's one of the huge takeaways from Revelation. No matter how crazy things look, God is in control. He's on his throne. He is in charge of history. But Satan is going to be in their bottomless pit for a thousand years. And then he's going to be released for a little while. Which is really odd. But that's what's going to happen. So let's go to verse 4 of chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. thousand years here shows up one, two, three, four times in seven verses. It's a pretty well-emphasized point. And you know what I think that means? It's going to be a thousand years. A thousand years is a long time. Now, a thousand years ago, Vikings were roaming the earth. It's going to be a totally different place for an entire thousand years. Now, how certain is this? Can we be certain there's a millennium? Is this not just a spiritual indicator that something spiritual is going to happen? I know Matt gave you a really great overview of the millennial kingdom and all the Old Testament verses that point to that and made the point that we don't have a ton of that in Revelation, but we don't need a ton of that in Revelation because the whole Old Testament points to it. But let me just show you one Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, and let me, let me start with the middle of verse 1. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's the Galilee area. And afterward, more oppressed by her, is just talking about, you know, this is going to be something that's going to take place. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Has anybody ever heard that verse before? Who's that talking about? Jesus. And we know that verse from the New Testament because the Jews were saying, who, whoever good ever comes out of Galilee... Well, look at look at this verse in, in uh, Isaiah. The Messiah comes out of Galilee. And then it goes on and says, verse 3, You've multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you have broken the yoke of his burden. The staff is his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. See, so you're going to be delivered from oppression, as in the day of Midian. I think that's probably referring to Gideon's deliverance. I think it was the Midianites that came up upon Israel there. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Does that sound familiar? Because we had this time period where we had to clean up and it took a ton of time to clean up from the battle and the blood ran to the chest of a horse. So there's going to be a massive battle. And then look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be be upon his shoulder. Now, has this already happened, verse 6? For unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given. Has that happened? Was it spiritual or physical? It was physical, right? And has this happened, and the government will be upon his shoulder? Well, sort of. He is on the throne, and nothing happens without his permission, but is he here reigning on earth? Not yet. So is the first part certain and physical, but the second part, is spiritual and uncertain if he's going to come once as a child and serve and he's the king of the earth does it make any sense that he wouldn't come a second time and set up his kingdom the first one's kind of hard to believe the second one is a no-brainer of course kings set up a kingdom Uh, the fact that there's this huge interlude was a great mystery And we're living in the middle of that mystery. But given that the first part's happened, it's a no-brainer that the second part will happen. And there's going to be a physical thousand-year reign on this earth. There's no doubt about it. Now the question becomes, I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. So who is them? Well, in this passage here, we see part of the answer in the next sentence. Then I saw the souls, pesuke, the lives of those who had been beheaded. Now, as an aside, this term souls being pasuke, lives, is very encouraging to me because you can go through and anywhere you see soul, you can substitute in life. It means you as a person, you as an individual, your personality. This is very encouraging to me. There's not any sort of a change in who I am in the sense of me as an individual. The change is in the housing that I'm in and the station that I'm in. I'm ready for a new house. Mine's falling apart. My body's starting to deteriorate. And I'd like to have a new one. So that part I look forward to. But I'm really glad I get to still be me. And that's going to be us. And who is going to sit on this throne? Well, part is those who have been beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Witness. Remember the Greek word that's witness? Martireo. These particular witnesses are what we call in English martyrs. Because they lost their lives. They're, they were beheaded. So apparently, beheading is going to become extremely widespread. We can see that starting a little bit in our world. Beheadings making a big comeback. We could be right on the doorstep. We, we don't know. So then the question is, is that all who's sitting on the throne? I'm going to say, no, that's not all who's sitting on the throne. I'm going to show you some verses where I'm going to advocate that there's other people sitting on the throne during the millennial kingdom. Let's look at Matthew 19, verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28. Let's start in verse 27. Then Peter, the spokesman, answered and said to him, Jesus, and this is after they're doing the rich man can't go through the eye of the needle, and Peter's responding that. And he says, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Now, don't you love Peter? I do. I just love Peter. He speaks on behalf of me. Because this is what we all want to know. What's in it for me! You know, we try to pretend like we don't seek our own best interest. Look, this is the way this works. We're designed in such a way where we can't not seek our own best interest. Well, let me restate that. We can't not seek what we perceive to be in our own best interest. The point of renewing the mind is to get God's perspective so we can actually seek what's in our best interest instead of what we think's in our best interest but is actually in our own destruction. And Peter's not shy about that. He says, well, we left everything to follow you. What do we get? And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, the millennial kingdom, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, sits on the throne of His glory, His glory as the King of the earth, as the King of humanity, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what you get, Peter. But don't get above your raisin because... Is not just you, verse 29. Everyone who's left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Eternal life is a gift and a reward. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So I'm going to give you a tremendous reward. But you know what? I might give somebody who is really puny in the eyes of man, just as great a reward. So this would indicate to me that at least the 12 disciples are included. And I'm 100% confident they're not going to be beheaded because they already got martyred once. <laughs> They've already been martyred. So they're included. But is it only them? Is it only them? I, I don't think so. I don't think so because he said in that in that passage in 1927... He says, it's not just you. I'm going to include everyone who suffered for my sake. And again, what's one of the main takeaways from Revelation? One of the main takeaways from Revelation is, if you will be a faithful witness, I'll make it worth your while. I'll make it worth your while. Now, it's interesting. We have a lot of people who want to know exactly what's going to happen, how this is going to come about, and what's going to happen to the people who aren't reigning during the thousand years. And I think the answer is quite definitive. I don't know what's going to be happening to those people. I'm very confident of that. But the ones who are the overcomers, who are the victors, who have paid the price, who have been the faithful witnesses, I think it's pretty clear they're included into them that's going to reign and live with Christ for a thousand years. Live with Christ. We were dead and now we're raised to life again and now we're going to be reigning for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, in verse 5, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Well, who are these people? And what does that include? I'm not sure. But there's one aspect of this that's very interesting. Let's look at Isaiah 65, verse 19. This is a millennial kingdom passage. It says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying no more shall an infant from there live but a few days. There's not going to be any infant mortality in this time period. Nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die a hundred years old. So in the millennial kingdom, when someone reaches a hundred years, they're going to still be considered a child. Death is going to be a very rare thing during the millennial kingdom, but not something that doesn't happen altogether. So there'll be some dead that take place during the millennial kingdom, although it's rare. And that's interesting. But who else is dead that is not resurrected until the thousand years are are finished? Well, let's look at this idea of the first resurrection in verse 5. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. So you're blessed Happy, makarios, just the same thing as blessed are the poor in spirit and so forth in the Beatitudes. Happy, this is really a happy thing if you get to be in the first resurrection. Philippians 3.11 says something that's kind of similar. And Paul says, see maybe start back in um, verse 8, he's talking about being a faithful witness. Once you get attuned to looking at this faithful witness idea, it's all through the Bible. Philippians 3 verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things as lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. So everything I've lost I count just like somebody came and took my trash out. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him. And the power of his resurrection in my daily life today, because that's what Paul admonishes us to do. This is how we become a faithful witness. Live the resurrected life, not the old man life. And the fellowship of his sufferings. If we live the resurrected life, we will suffer with Jesus. And then he says, being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to the out-resurrection. This is an exo Anastasis, I don't know how you say the word. It's a different word that means the out resurrection. It's the only time it's used from the dead. A special resurrection. So maybe that's what, and clearly he's not doubting whether he is righteous in in the sight of God, that he's been justified before God. There's no doubt there. What there is here is, I'm not teleo with my life. I'm not finished. I'm not completed. And I know if I want to win this special resurrection, I have to make it all the way to the finish line. The Apostle Paul thinks that way. Now that's challenging, don't you think? But there's no retirement from the Christian walk. There's no pushing in the clutch and coasting through the finish line. There is be a faithful witness until death. And it's never too late to start. No matter how old you are. It's never too late to start because the first will be last and the last will be first. Remember the parable of the guy that's at 3 o'clock and, and work stops at 5? And he gets he gets called to the vineyard and he works two hours and gets a full day's pay and everybody complains, hey, I, I worked all day and I got the same amount of money. And Jesus says, so what's your problem if I want to be generous to the guy that was waiting all day long for a job and then started and then gave, me, gave me two good hours? So it's never too late and never quit. Those are really clear principles here. But there's some kind of special resurrection. And maybe that's what this is talking about, the first resurrection. Maybe this is an overcomer's resurrection. And it's associated with reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I find in conversations sometimes this is an unwelcome thought for people. But in conversation, well, it's because they want the idea that there's no real consequences to their actions on earth. And the idea that there's something that they miss out on that's so amazing that it would really be devastating to miss out is something they don't really want to think about. Well, there's a reason why God gave us this admonition. And so we can see and get some encouragement to do what we need to do now. You know, most people don't run past what they're capable or what they feel they're capable of in order to really get in shape without a coach yelling at them. You need some exhortation. You need some people saying you're going to lose in the fourth quarter if you don't do this extra work. And that's that's kind of the idea here. This is not easy, but it is worth it, more than worth it. Verse 6, we see this second death. So blessed is holy as he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. Now the second death later in this chapter in verse 14 is clearly spelled out what it is. If you look over at verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The second death, I think, is clearly the lake of fire. And if we look back in Revelation 2, verse 10, it says, Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. This is the suffering church. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested. Now, who would have actually thrown them into prison in, the, in that day? We're back, we're back in the letter to the churches that existed at that time. Would they have seen a snake come and throw them in prison? It would have been a Roman soldier throwing them in prison. But remember, Satan's on the throne of Pergamos. So Satan's going to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And you'll have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. Now, there's the, there's the theme again and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, Nikeo, victor, he who is the victor, he who is the conqueror, he who submits others, he who finishes all the way to the end and wins, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So this lake of fire is permanent for unbelievers. But for believers, it can be something that hurts. Well, sometimes that's something that people don't like to hear, but it's all through the scripture. It's not just uh, something that is uh, occasional. We have a God that's a consuming fire. If we're in the presence of God, we're in the presence of a consuming fire. And what we're gonna see a little later is that the sea is gonna give up the dead and Hades is gonna give up the dead. And we have to figure out what the sea in Hades is. But what we do know is what the first resurrection people are doing. What everybody else is doing, I, I don't think we're told. It just doesn't say. There is a participation trophy version of all of this. That you know everybody gets a participation trophy and all this stuff about actual consequences. Uh, never mind. But that's not what the that's not what the scripture says. Well, I don't know about sleeping. Uh, they may be sitting in heaven watching what's going on on earth. And in fact, you know, there is there is this idea that well, let's just let's just go to it. Let's just go to First Corinthians uh, chapter three. So First Corinthians three. Let's start with verse eleven. Paul is talking about these Corinthian believers who are deciding among themselves. Who follows Paul and who follows Apollos? And they're saying, well, if you follow Apollos, you're inferior to me. No, if you follow Paul, you're inferior to me. And Paul comes on and says, look, Apollos and I aren't anything in particular. Okay, We, we have a job to do and we're doing our job. I laid the foundation, Paul's, Apollos is building on it, and you're judging between us. But you shouldn't be doing that. You know why? Because you don't get to judge. God gets to judge. And here's how that's going to work. So start in verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what I did, Paul. Verse 12. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So this is like kind of like the three little pigs. You know, there's different kinds of things you can build a house out of. And if you build it out of brick, can the, can the wolf blow it down? If you build out a straw, can the wolf blow it? That's the idea. So you can build it with gold, silver, precious stones. Gold, silver, precious stones. Sturdy or not sturdy? Pretty sturdy, right? How about wood, hay, straw? Not so sturdy. And here's what happens. Each one's work will become clear. Why? Because the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. So it's not going to be a a wolf huffing and puffing. It's going to be a flamethrower. Comes along and says, Let's see how good this house is that you built. And if it's wood, hay, and stubble and straw, it's going to burn up. And if it's gold, silver, precious stones, it's going to be refined and made even purer. That's the idea. Each one's work will become clear. Now, we're not talking about whether you get to be a child of God or not. That's something Jesus does. That's birth. We're talking about what did you do during your life. And now that becomes clear. The day, the judgment day, will declare it. And again, Paul's saying, you can judge Apollos and I if you want to, but you're sitting in someone else's chair when you do that. And you're making a judgment that doesn't belong to you. Instead of judging between Apollos and me, what you should be doing is worrying about your own judgment. That's what you should be worrying about. What are you doing? It's one thing to to judge me and Apollos and me, Focus on you and your work and what what's going to happen when it revealed when your work is revealed It'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work on which he has built on it endures he will receive a reward you'll be an overcomer You'll be raining potentially and I'm sure there's rewards for people that don't make the rain Uh, There's there seems to be this gradation seems to be pretty clear That there's a different grading of different people. And everyone's graded on the basis of what they did with what they had. What gifts did you have and what opportunity do you have? To much who's given, much is required. Which means to whom little is given, little is required. Right? Because you can't expect a child to do the work of a man. If you go out and you're digging a ditch and you give the little boy a shovel and he gets 10 scoops during the day and is trying, well, that's pretty good. And if if a a grown man who's really muscular says, well, he only did 10 scoops, that's all, I should only have to do 11, you look at the guy and say, kind of wimp are you? Get busy, right? It's It's a matter of what did you do with what do you have. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. So here you are on the judgment day standing before Jesus, Suffering loss. Why? Because learning requires suffering. And discipleship doesn't stop when we get to heaven. We're all predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. And that's going to keep going until we learn everything we need to learn. And that's good. it's good for us. That's why. He himself will be saved... So this isn't, are we going to pasuke or not, or is our lives going to continue on? And this is not, are we really believers or not? This is, who do we become? What is our station going to be? He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So there's going to be people in heaven during this time period that walk in a room, everybody's, <laughs> smells, like, smells like smoke in here. You, you know, who's singed? Because they got so as through fire. And then it goes on, verse 16. Do you not know you are the temple of God? And the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. God does not like us messing with His works. And if you want to build up something that's false in place of something that's true, He'll just knock it down, smash it. He's not going to have that. Why? Because He's called His people to holiness. And we've all been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Here's our choice. Do we want to do it through the fiery trials of persevering obedience? Or do we want to do it by having everything burned up and then learning through that way as we lose the opportunity to reign on earth and we're doing I don't know what? It doesn't tell us. Now, here's why I think it doesn't tell us. Our inclination, if it tells us, okay, and here's what it's going to be like for everybody else, is to say, hmm, okay, so it's only a thousand years and raining on earth doesn't sound all that good sounds like a lot of work and this other thing so, you, you, so you're telling me I can wander in the desert and my shoes won't wear out and somebody will provide my food all I got to go out and, and do is pick it up and I won't have many battles or I can go into this land I'm going to have giants and wars and uh, trouble but I get to own the land Hmm. I like Scottsdale better that's our tendency, you know, because we tend to overemphasize the trouble that's in front of us and deemphasize the trouble that's coming. And, and I don't think God wants us to make that evaluation. the 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 clear thing is here. Look, I'm telling you which one's better. Take the fiery trials. Be the faithful witness. And the, and the picture he gives us here is like, well, this sounds awful. This other alternative, it sounds like, sounds like fire. And Lake of fire, isn't that where all these other people go? It, it, it sounds like loss, since so, it? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get across. I'm trying to get across that by comparison, you don't want that. You want to be the faithful witness. That's that's the big point. That's what I'm trying to get to you. Be the faithful witness. Yeah? Only two faithful spies. So maybe you got two million people, and three people, three of those got to go in. Moses suffered loss, I mean, he, and God said, "This is my favorite guy. This is this is like be like this guy." And as a matter of fact, when I send my Messiah back, he's going to be like this guy. That's how, that's how elevated he was, but you screwed up so you don't get the inheritance. Because to him, much more was expected than of other people, right? So this isn't easy. This isn't easy. Narrow is the way, few that goes in. But who does God want to win? Who does he want to win? Just his favorites? No, he wants all of us to win. And how do we do that? It's simple. Just be faithful with what God's given you to do. One of the things we tend to do is what the Corinthians did. Well, so I don't, I don't, I just don't have the gifts that Alan has, so I'm off the hook. Or I, I don't have the gift that Warren has, so I'm off the hook. Well, I can't, ha- you know, I cannot exercise Warren's gifts. Why? I'm not Warren. I can't exercise. Warren can exercise Warren's gifts, and he's gonna, he's gonna give account to God. For what He does, I'm going to give account to what I do with what I had to deal with. None of us know what everybody else is dealing with. That's going to be God's determination. We do spend a lot of time deciding on behalf of God how good everybody else is doing. We do that. It's just kind of naturally built in. And the admonition here is, don't do that. Spend time figuring out, okay, where am I before God? In 1 John, it tells us that if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I believe what that's telling us is that although all of our works are judged, and if we're faithful, we get a reward, there's always an opportunity to start over and reset by confessing. Now, confessing means you've got to become aware. And 1 John, again, tells us that if, we're, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father... And most of our sin, we're not even aware of, and Jesus just takes care of it. His blood covers it. I'm really grateful for that. Because as I grow in life, I become more and more aware of my sin. And my opinion of myself keeps going down. I probably still only see a tiny bit of the corruption that's actually there. So I'm glad he just takes care of the rest. But again, what he wants me to do is deal with what I have and what I know. And what he wants me to do is look at the sin I can see, the corruption of my flesh I can see. And he's going to say, what are you going to do with that? And if I can confess, which means I take his view of it. And I say, I'm going to look at that flesh and say, that's a dead, corrupt, rotten, nasty animal that wants me to drag me down into the depths that that serpent's at and put it to death and walk in the newness of life. If I can do that on a day, I, I have a little gold. I find a little fleck of gold in my pen. And, and I can take that and build my building with it. And when I mess up, I think we can actually deal with those things here on earth. But you know what confession is? Painful. Have you found that? I think it was a Gus and a Lonesome Dove that said confession was like a dry shave. It hurts. That's part of the fire of difficulty. And the point is, take it now. Take the difficulty now. It pays in the long run. God, thank you for your grace and this amazing message of exhortation for us to live this life faithfully and the amazing grace and power you give us to do it. The ability to start over every day fresh. The ability to put the past behind and move on. The ability to start at any time. But God, I pray that what you'll help us do is just realize, man, this is a big deal. And help us be faithful from this point forward. In Jesus' name, amen.